Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I'm your host, Justin Libernet. With me today is the co-founder of the Yimby Alliance and the author, along with Ben Southwood and Sam Bowman, of The Housing Theory of Everything. I'm very happy to welcome John Myers. John, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Justin. So I was really taken by this article that was written a couple of years ago, but has suddenly got a ton of traction. There's been articles on it in The Atlantic, Washington Post, and a couple other places have picked it up and done rundowns because it seems very relevant all of a sudden. Can you go through how you put together this idea and this concept of the housing theory of everything and kind of give us a overview of what that idea is? I mean, it's huge. It's everything, but <laughs> a kind of overview that we can work with. Sure. So, I mean, this is something that I've been really interested in for 10 years now. Um, and it, it just became increasingly clear to me that um, so many of the different problems that you find today in society, um, problems about low growth, um, lack of wages, um, difficulty in affording housing, long, stressful commutes, um, people, uh, health problems can often be traced to housing as well. So many of these different problems, they ultimately come back to the fact that we're not building enough of the right kind of housing um, where people need that housing. And so you can even trace it to um, things like pollution, that we're actually increasing the amount of pollution because we're not building enough housing in the right places. And um, over, you know, so I was collecting the evidence for that over time. Um, I run a campaign which is sort of related to housing, and um, it it became sort of more and more important to me to get that on paper. And Ben and Sam came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing something um, for their website, and so I jumped at the chance of writing that with them. That's fantastic. It's it's a really neat idea. For those of you that are listening and haven't read it yet, we will have links to that article as well as to John and Sam and everybody so you can follow up with them. Um, as you go through this concept and this idea of housing being the root of all of these problems, when you say we aren't building enough of the right kind of housing in the right place, how is type of housing defined for that? And how do we know what the right place is? Well, I mean, I'm not presuming to tell anyone um, what they should want or, um, you know, where they should want it. I mean, I just tend to go by where people want to be able to move to, to be able to get the jobs that they want to uh, that they want to do or where they want their family to be able to live, to get the right opportunities, um, to be healthier, to be happier. And, you know, we can see there's enormous demand to move to different areas around the country, successful areas. Um, San Diego for is one example, San Francisco, the New York area. But there's lots of growing cities um, where housing is super unaffordable. And if you trace that back, it's because often in those places, there just hasn't been a lot of housing built for many decades. And that's contributed to these growing problems, not just of um unaffordable housing but of inequality and it makes it disproportionately difficult for people on lower incomes to move to those high wage cities because for them even though they might get a small increase in their wage um, by moving to that city the housing is just so unaffordable that unless you're yeah. a kind of superstar lawyer or something you can't afford to move so that's talking about the the places manhattan's an easy example of course but in manhattan where you have these these rents that are so high that if you work at a Starbucks or are a plumber, you're not going to be able to live in the city. And so right. if you work in the city, you have a commute on either side and that kind of flexes it out to where you're living an hour from where you work. 
between living yeah, and absolutely. working. Right? And it goes further than that, you know, so you have people who are um, doing kind of skilled jobs like a plumber or something who in times past maybe in the middle of the 20th century would have moved to opportunity they might have moved to california back then um you know they'd move to another city now but if you look at how many of those people are deciding to move and move their families to opportunity much fewer of them are moving today than used to move in the past. And so we've seen a decline in mobility, and that means a decline in opportunity. It means an increase in inequality just from the fact that there isn't that same ability to move to um, where you want to be. Hmm. So when you're looking at that, is do you think that's one of several factors compounding on, on how and why and where people move? Because the economic advantage is clear in some ways. That's an easy way to talk about it. But then you look at people's networks and support structures that they have, what they know, they're so used to going to certain places to the, to their gym, to their restaurants, to their churches. Does that compound the problem or just sit kind of away from the problem? I think it interlinks with it. you know. And um, so I completely agree with you. Look at communities that have grown up in cities like San Francisco or New York City and people, people would come sometimes from other countries, sometimes from other parts of the country, because they already had connections into those communities and it was easier for them to move there. And to the extent that those communities kind of already exist in some of those cities and were making it difficult to move to those cities, we're obviously compounding the problem. But I mean, as you say, there are existing communities elsewhere that also keep people where they are. And I'm the last person to tell someone that they should move. So people should just, I, I, I'm very happy to, I hope we can let people uh, move to where they think they'll be happiest. Uh, you know, I should probably take a step back here. I mean, the, the term, the housing theory of everything, it's a great headline. Um, uh, it's got some traction, but I don't think anyone's pretending that everything is traceable back to housing. The real point is that if you look at so many problems in the, in the modern world today, many of them do have a housing component and many of them wouldn't be as big of a problem if we were to do a lot more on the housing front. Yeah, and that's fair. I think when I'm when I'm poking these angles, I'm just trying to flex and, and show people that there is an edge to this because it is it's a it's a great idea and has a really lot of uh, traction. But you also kind of sometimes can encounter that thing when you make such a, a broad claim that it turns into the hammer and everything's a nail. Right. But in yeah, in this case, I think that the the underlying point, which is that there are major issues that are caused by how we've decided to make housing is spot on accurate. I have no quibble with that. Um, did you follow uh, Tony Shea when he was out here in Vegas putting stuff together? I'm afraid I did not know. Please tell me this about is, that. So this is a really neat story. Unfortunately, he's he's passed, but he's very much in the same headspace as you. So he ran a company called Zappos that sells shoes. Amazon bought that company and said, Tony, where do you want your headquarters? He said, I want it in that disadvantaged, economically broken part of Northern Las Vegas. I'm going to take over the old courthouse and put Zappos there. And his idea was if we get one or two bigger companies in this area, if we invest in housing, if we invest in other businesses, if we invest in restaurants and clubs, we can make this a place where people have those big ideas and start churning out economic prosperity. And he's been extremely successful at it to the point where now it's one of the most um, viable, vibrant, modern parts of Las Vegas. And so that kind of planning feels like the kind of thing you're kind of pushing towards um, with this this discussion around what the roots are. Is is that the idea? Like, can it be used to revitalize areas 
Yeah, I think that's certainly a part of the idea. And I do, sorry, now remember the, the Shea story. And it's a very inspiring one. Um, you know, I, and I think one of the things I'd argue for is that we need to try to get to more flexible um, rules about land use to make it easier for people to have that kind of project, to, to bring forward that kind of radical change and improvement. Because if you've got, if you've got um, things tied up in rules so you can't get the permit to change to your new Zappos headquarters, then you're never going to get that kind of regeneration. Yeah. So <clears throat> we're in different places. I'm in the US and you're in the UK, correct? You're in London? Correct. Yeah. So how do those land use laws get so locked in? Let's start talking a little bit about NIMBYism and YIMBYism because I know that that's where you're at now. How did those laws get so locked in? Like what's, why are we so stuck with can't build that here? You know, I think it's, th th this is a thing that's come on gradually over time. But if you go back a hundred years, you find the beginnings of people complaining about um, you know, noxious uses, chemicals being emitted. People were always complaining about kind of leather tanneries and, and, and chemical factories. So this is not a completely new thing. I think what's happened over the last hundred years is that um, people have become, people have frankly, in general, on average, become wealthier. And there's a much larger proportion of homeowners rather than renters today than we used to have. And when people buy a home, they suddenly become very proprietary about that home and they, they worry about it and they worry about the effects on their neighborhood and they, you know, they don't like things that will um, inconvenience them or that might change their way of life in some way. And perhaps you might argue sometimes they're a bit oversensitive, but um, there's been a gradual change, a gradual increase in people who just want protection from change, people who just don't like things, new things being built, developed, constructed around them. And the law has often been altered to respond to that. And it's been, so this started off with kind of reactions against chemical plants and in a, in a way where I think, you know, a lot of people would agree you shouldn't build a chemical plant right in the middle of a city. And then yeah. over time, it's sort of morphed into this position where we've kind of, for many neighborhoods, just say you can't change them at all. And, you know, if we'd had that rule back um, 100 years ago, many of those neighborhoods would never have been built. So it's kind of obvious that's not a sustainable position to be in for the long term. We can't just freeze a whole country um, in stasis. And we can't, it's it's profoundly damaging as well if we're going to stop people from being able to move to opportunity. So um, I think the, I'm not sure the kind of demand for some sort of protection against change, some kind of feeling of control is ever going to go away. So the, our take on that is let's try and work with um, the people who are happy to to, to work out what what's acceptable and and can they what can they live with let's try and build a, a coalition um, for positive change that's going to improve cities that's going to improve people's neighborhoods that that should improve the lives for homeowners as well over time um, because I think there's a lot of people get sort of worried about what what if these single family homes get turned into townhouses and oh no that's such a radical scale of change but actually that's that's yeah. totally fine right it's not like that's going to suddenly cause a crisis of any kind and and frankly you know if you if you get zoning to change um a single family area into into townhouses that can often increase the property values for the existing homeowners you know so you can play in that in that way with things that that actually benefit everyone and i think there's a lot more scope to go in that direction so California's recently finally, finally made one change to their 
housing codes like through the whole state. And that's to allow for an additional dwelling unit called an ADU mm-hmm. that you can yep. put above a garage or in a in the extra part of your lot. Is that the kind of direction you're talking about? I mean, you talk about splitting the townhouses, but um, yeah, I think that's definitely one direction. So ADUs, um, ADUs have worked really well in, in a number of states, especially California. I think I think theoretically in California, you can actually now get up to four units because you can subdivide oh. and then add an ADU to each unit. Um, and I think it's really interesting that that's, you know, that's kind of gone through and there hasn't been a massive backlash against it. Um, and that could be really effective in getting more housing. And, and it's kind of it's kind of an example of this idea of working, trying to work with the homeowners who are, um, the homeowners who are willing to listen to reason and, and work towards change that's kind of beneficial to everybody um and and in that way you're you're creating more homes you're over time making housing more affordable um and you're enable you're able to ensure that that change is sustainable because what you're not doing is kind of annoying suddenly 60 percent of the voters um and and then you you're going to inspire a backlash which might push that change to be reversed so in those in those changes, like from the codes that say we're going to put manufacturing and stuff that has high chemical content further away from where people are living, which makes sense because you don't want to pollute the water supply. How does that morph and change into the spot where people are going? There's no apartments, no density. We want we want the sprawl instead. Like what's yeah. how does that come about? Because that feels so off to just push for one house, one person, one acre. It's yeah, I think so. And you know, I'm gonna, I mean, so I'm gonna defer to you because I'm not an expert on U.S. zoning history. Um, I know I think it's, I think I do think it's pretty clear there was a kind of gradual process of creeping change, and some jurisdictions are very different to others. You know, if you look at the sort of discretionary review process in San Francisco, for example, it's um, maybe almost as, or even more difficult, as difficult to get a permit to build a new house as it is in the U.K., where we have kind of probably the most restrictive. Um, zoning system in the in the developed world so um but then there are other jurisdictions which are more relaxed you know um atlanta i think it's easier to, to add housing houston adds quite a lot of housing houston technically doesn't have a zoning system although it does houston's have... crazy houston has like five <laughs> city centers it's really right. weird <laughs> i mean I, and they I can don't, build I... anything anywhere they just go here's another thing here's another thing and it's it's <laughs> incoherent it's amazing yeah, I, I, I'm really keen to go and explore. I mean, they're building a lot of um, townhouse developments, as I understand it, townhouses, which I think they look good and they seem to be kind of respectful of the street and they they, they seem to make an improvement to the neighborhood. So I think that's a really interesting example. I don't think you can suddenly strip away the zoning regime in the Bay Area. That's, yeah. that's probably not something that's going to happen overnight. Yeah, one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the products we've seen come online too in the last couple of years in the US is build to rent single family residential, build to rent townhomes, and also build to rent tiny homes. Um, Mm -hmm. These three classes are kind of interesting. The build to rent tiny homes, they tend to be about 800 to 1,000 square feet, one bedroom or two bedroom, and then the garage or carport is offset, but you have your own four walls. You're not sharing walls with another apartment or dwelling. And so as we start putting these things in, it feels like what people are looking for is a path from a dorm an apartment, their place that they're living to get through school or their first job into a progressive step up. Right. So as we kind of look at this problem and try and figure out how many people can live in an area, do we risk people wanting to get further away just for the more space? Or, or do we think that the economic advantages of having those people around will keep them there? Well, you know, I mean, 
I, I prefer not to tell people what they should do. If somebody wants well, to live fair. in a slice, <laughs> if somebody wants to live in a smaller space because that cuts down the commute that they have to do and they can live nearer to the, the stores that they want to go to or the restaurant or the bars, then that's great from my perspective. You know, so um, you probably, I'm sure you know the English author Charles Dickens who um, wrote about Oliver Twist and, and the orphan who was living on on. on gruel in um porridge yeah. in, a, in 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 an orphanage i mean you know, sometimes there's a there's a nice argument that if you ban these options which are not the perfect option if you ban a small home it's kind of like banning gruel because you know you're saying to people that's not good enough for you but you're not providing them with a better mm. alternative so we we should try and avoid banning gruel and we should let people <laughs> i think um pick the options that are good for them that's a, I like that comparison because then you can get into the, the homeowners and the people living there. Please, might I have more of these <laughs> that I want to live in? Um, okay, so <clears throat> that makes sense, but it still sits in that space that we ran through for a couple of years here. And I wanted to know, because this came out like right at the end of 2021, uh, your article was completed. So you were finished writing it during COVID. Um, as COVID hit and the lockdown spread over, how does that affect this idea? Because you have stuff come out of this stuff like work from home and right. um, remote and offshoring. And so as that comes in and plays with this, how does that affect proximity to work, proximity to stuff, proximity to labor and housing? I mean, COVID has a huge effect on a range of things. You know, I think not least it kind of underlined the um, inequalities that are related to housing in the sense that many, that for the people who were living um, in kind of, um, more crowded conditions than they wanted to, or for people who were kind of roommates stuck in, in in a single apartment because they couldn't each afford an apartment of their own because we haven't built enough apartments. You saw a lot more COVID transmission in those conditions than you did in people who were able to live um, less with kind of more space per person. And so that that was kind of was the first takeaway for me that the COVID exacerbated um, the impact of existing housing problems. Um, but then. We, we also saw that people who suddenly needed to work from home suddenly found that they didn't have enough space, which again comes down to the fact that we just haven't built enough housing. Um, yeah. And so work from home kind of in some places exacerbated that state problem, even though it space problem, even though in places like Manhattan, it might have suddenly created temporarily some some spare space. I think um, obviously COVID had a, a, a wide ranging impact. Um, personally, um, I think it probably... Uh, forced me to focus on finishing the article because there, there weren't a load of other distractions on my time. Um, but, you know, I think it does encourage us to think about all of these different effects. And I don't think it, working from home doesn't mean that cities have gone away. It doesn't mean that people mm. aren't going to want to live near their community, near their friends, near their job, near their restaurant. Um, it might mean that some people have more flexibility in where that place is. But um, it, you, you've seen a huge resurgence of cities over the last year and a half. And so we're just going to have to learn to adapt. Um, and that goes back to the underlying point. We've just got to get better at building housing, building other infrastructure, because we don't know what the future is going to bring. Right? And unless if yeah. we carry on being as unadaptable now, as we unadaptable as we are now, then we're just not going to be well prepared for the next thing that hits. So you mentioned infrastructure too. And so there was a couple of studies and articles talking about how the uh, cost of vehicles, cost of fuel, cost of 
generally transportation, especially in the US where we have really bad public transportation, is contributing to this this split between economically advantaged and driving as a privilege, which also enables you to live further out and then commute in as opposed to having to bike or walk, hitch a ride, Uber, hopefully use public transport, buses and all that. Being from somewhere that has pretty good public transportation um, and really good trains, um, how do you see getting those pieces, the infrastructure stuff, set up so that it can support the higher density? Because that's an even bigger problem than building just an apartment building, right? It's, it's yeah, I mean, I think maybe we almost, local... we almost need a separate whole conversation about that. I mean, so the, the United States has costs for building infrastructure, which are even higher than the United Kingdom. Um, you know, I think there's a, that's a kind of really long and complicated inquiry as to how the US and different places in the US could get better at building more affordable infrastructure. Now, I think it's, I think something the example was if, if the United States could build at the cost that Spain builds transit, then, you know, you could have basically put a, a, a transit system in the entire Bay Area for the cost of what the high speed rail was going to cost. Um, and yeah. these, these kinds of examples. So if you have, if it's less expensive to build, that already makes the conversation a lot easier. Um, and it also means you can for example, put things underground where if you're actually doing full transit, you can put things underground and then that's less likely to bother the people. Because let's face it, I mean, you're putting a new rail line in that, that's going to be kind of disruptive. Um, But um, I think the key is partly that, so there's there's also a question of parking, you know, and and, uh, Donald Shoup has written a lot about this, the high cost of free parking. And this is another one of the things that's driven um, the sort of single family zoning and the the, the restrictions that you see where um, for many years, it's been required to provide a huge amount of parking for any particular um, downtown use that you would add. And that's sort of devastated the center of some cities where um, instead of what were quite g- good buildings and, and attractive neighborhoods, you now have expanses of parking lot, um, which aren't really needed. And so we have to we have to move a bit away from planning everything around the motor car. Um, and we have to get better at adding more density. And as you add more density, then transit becomes more economically viable. And this is, you know, this is a key takeaway that if you have just um, endless miles of very, very low density sprawling housing, transit is almost never going to be viable because it just costs, you have fewer riders per mile and that's what drives the economics of new transit. So you've, you can't i don't think you can kind of put the cart before the horse i think you have to get better at adding density and with that add the transit as you go if that makes sense yeah no that's fair um we're in vegas we have taxi unions that were really strong and so they stopped the placement of a monorail that would go all the way down to the airport so now we have one that shuttles back and forth between three or four casinos and now we have Elon's out here with his boring companies drilling holes underneath the convention center to run cars back and forth. And there are all these solutions that kind of poke around the edges. And the only one that seemed to have any real effect on that was when Uber and Lyft kind of came in. Um, and that's that's because they were working in this economic capital space to try and give people another way to earn money while at the same time solving the taxi problem, which here is a problem. You call a taxi, never show up if you're not on the strip. So because of how that happens, because it's like just a behavioral change, how do you kind of poke that and get that going with policy instead of waiting for some something that's 
cool and neat and solves a problem. And so people get on board with it. Like, I feel like that's been one of the few times where people have kind of changed their habits and it profoundly shifted how that problem was solved. So when we talk about transit and how to fix that problem or zoning and how to fix that problem, is it, is it just constantly pushing on it or is there some kind of helpful, fun, engaging way that kind of pulls people in to go, Oh, let's, yeah, let's go to a planning meeting and see what's happening. Right. Well, you know, I think, so I think that that would kind of underline the point that I make that really, we just need more experimentation in how to do this stuff. And, um, the interesting thing about ride hailing services is that they had, um, different adoption rates in different states, different places. Uh, and this is the great thing about the United States that you get experimentation that different states can see what what they'll allow and that that allows change. Uh, and um, you still see, there are still some European countries where, where ride hailing is illegal. And um, it's a real change in the experience when you suddenly go to a city where you cannot you can't find a taxi and you if you've got luggage and you can't you, you can have real problems um obviously it'd be great to have an improved transit system but practically speaking there are people who simply you know they're going to need they're going to need a ride um so i think we just need more experimentation you know we need to be so the whole concept of having to go to a planning meeting to me that's sort of that's starting from the wrong place you know because existing okay. zoning was fundamentally designed to stop change, really. It was never designed to yeah. encourage change. It was never designed to say, let's have a conversation about what change is good. It was about it was about saying, let's stop change. And it's not clear to me that when somebody comes up with a single project and everybody around that project is probably not going to be that thrilled, let's face it, because it's not really benefiting them necessarily. That's the right way. I don't think that's the right way, in fact, to um, figure out how you're going to improve the place where you live, how you're going to improve your city, how you're going to get growth, how you're going to get more tax revenues to pay for the infrastructure that you want and the services right. that you want. Um, so I think it's what we need to do is encourage more places to experiment with better ways of doing land use rules, of doing rules on transportation, and see which of those work, see which of those get to things that people want, get to growth, get to more jobs, get some more opportunity. Okay. And in that experimentation, do you see anybody that's in that kind of space right now and is doing experimentation with land use, with how they can build stuff? Like, are there yeah, any think, models that we can look to? And I think the, look, I think the Yimby movement itself has, has um, had some great, um, successes in in encouraging dialogue and getting experimentation you see some great experimentation in seattle i think um and in california as we've discussed and various other areas of the country there are different countries as well that are worth looking at so tel aviv right now um has this kind of amazing law where the uh, the owners of a of an apartment block can agree among themselves to kind of redevelop or extend that apartment block and add more units and that led to 35% of the new homes in Tel Aviv in 2020. Um, and that's a completely, completely kind of wild and different way of thinking about land use to, yeah. to the way you probably see in the United States or the, or the United Kingdom. But it's kind of interesting. Um, Houston itself also did an interesting experiment where they were, they were reducing the minimum lot size. So they were reducing the area of a lot that you had to have before you could add a new home on that. And the idea was that it would make it would enable people to build more housing because obviously if you can build a house yeah. on a smaller lot, then you can have more houses for a given area of land. And there was some political pushback to that. But 
what they did was say, well, okay, so if there's this political pushback, how do we get those groups who are concerned to be more relaxed about this? And they said, okay, you can opt out. If you can get a petition on your block or on your street um, that you don't want this change in the minimum lot size, you can stick with the old system. And I think they had, I forget the exact number, it was something like 65% of the people on that street or on that block had to had to agree that they didn't want the change. Now, obviously, that was a financial, um, that, would, that would impose a kind of financial cost on them, because if you yeah. reduce the minimum lot size, you're increasing the value of that land. So these are people who are making a strong statement, we don't want more valuable properties, we just don't want change. Um, and there are people who are in that position. And so Houston put this forward as the proposal. We're going to decrease the minimum lot size. But if your street really doesn't want that, your block doesn't really want that, you don't get that change. And it went through. That that diffused the opposition. It meant that people could thought, well, OK, if we don't want change, we don't have to have change and we can live with it. And um, Nolan Gray, uh, California Yimby, wrote a great report on this, which sort of set out that most of the city um, just was let the change go through. And so you had some areas where there were a bunch of petitions that people didn't want change, but the the majority of the city, it just went straight through. But what they'd done was diffuse the opposition. So it was just easier to get that reform passed. And I think that was an interesting piece of experimentation. Yeah, it, it kind of speaks to the, because there's, there's two kind of central players in this that we're going to keep bumping it. Well, I guess there's a lot of players in this, but the ones that I think of when you talk about that story are you have the policy controls on one side, which is very much governmental. And then you have the economic questions on the other side, which is the builders, the owners of land, the owners of property that are already there. And there's often this, this, it's not necessarily a misalignment, but as policy is created, the businesses that build the builders and the developers are looking at that and finding out how to maximize the revenue from that plan. And so with that capitalist piece in the background that kind of pushes on a very a monetary policy instead of a, a successful or a planned policy, how does that kind of exert pressure from the outside on what planning departments do and how those plans go through? Because you're talking about diffusing with the increased valuation of the land and then giving them a 65% um, approval is needed. But you still have this economic concern that's going to go, where am I going to invest my money that I get the most return? So how do we get those people to join in the experimentation and risk capital? Right. Well, I mean, the I, I think it's worth underlining that different cities have different reactions to this kind of thing, you know, and yeah. some planning departments are kind of very pro-growth and some planning departments are not that play growth, but you know the, the the planners I know they all went into into planning because they want to make a better world, and so they're just keen to have the tools with which to enable that kind of process to happen. Um, and I think I, I haven't talked to any of the developers in the Houston experiment, but I suspect that the developers were very happy with the change that that they got because they were then able to go out and build more build more housing um, on the in the places where the minimum lot size. Did get changed, so I think that that kind of worked for everybody. And this sort of comes back to what I'd say is a sort of fundamental point here: that I think there's a real problem that people sort of see this as a kind of zero sum thing, where it's either you win or I win, but somebody's got to lose. And that that I think is partly an unfortunate function of the way that that zoning works. That we've sort of designed systems partly because we designed 
people design zoning systems to block change. And, and so there was never any conception of trying to find ways where everybody wins, you know. And yeah. uh, if we look for systems where everybody can win, which is, I would argue, the Houston experiment is getting pretty close to that, um, then it's much easier to get that change through. And the thing is that this, the whole sort of point of the article we wrote, the housing theory of everything, is that if we can unlock some of the blockages that are preventing housing getting built to meet people's needs, um, we will un unlock more growth. We, we help to solve a whole range of other problems. So there's basically this trillion dollar bills lying on the sidewalk waiting for the country to pick up if it can just solve yeah. these problems. And that tells you that, you know, there are win-win ways probably of doing this. We just have to look for them and we have to experiment until we find them. Yeah. And, and to your zero sum point, I think there is this, this idea that, okay, well, there's going to be money made. How do I make sure I'm the one that makes money, which is problematic in this, because what you're talking about is unlocking economic potential and growth for everybody. When people are able to maximize their skills in a marketplace and earn more money, that benefits everybody. That's an increased tax base. That's increased money that's going around to buy goods and services. So, and that's kind of the, th the thing that I'm trying to figure out. And I don't know if there's an answer for it. I don't think we're, we necessarily will get one, but there are developers and I've, I've, I have worked with them who will go in and go, cool. I bought this land. I'm going to park it and just keep it for another five years and tell them, planning ordinances are what I want to do with this piece of land or somebody offers me twice what I paid for it. Like it's a pure economic interest argument. And I think that the planning question is really where that good can come out of because you do have to have kind of a holistic concept of how all these pieces fit together and not be sitting in one position to kind of make head. Yeah, I think that's right. But also you could remember, look, I think it's really hard. Um, that's a really hard task for somebody to sit there and, and know everything there is to know about what everyone wants and, and yeah. what they'd accept <laughs> and the kind of what their bottom line is. Um, you know, so to me, I think it might be, it's worth experimenting with these kind of mechanisms that perhaps almost expose things to the market a bit more that, that let, let people vote with their feet or let people, let people decide actually this is in, this is in the interest of me and my family or my community. And I'm happy to do that. Yeah. And um, perhaps trying to bypass some of these incredibly protracted negotiations or discretionary processes, um, because I think, you know, what we need to be relentlessly pushing to do is to get to kind of, okay, democracy is maybe it's it's not a great system, but it's the least bad system we have, right? So yeah. we need to make we need to make to make democracy work as well as it can. And we need to get to decisions as quickly as possible that that as many people as possible are happy with, but that actually do deliver growth and opportunity. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, I'd, I'd like for this stuff to come to be. I, I think the only reason I'm kind of reticent is, is I did some work in psychology. And so the, the ability of people to punish others with no gain for themselves is, is it scares me in this space because I worry that they'll try and keep certain people out or different um, Republicans, Democrats, just those kind of fights where it's all about having the right people as neighbors. And it just gets really, people are very, um, can be very cruel. And and so I, I hope for, I'm hopeful, but I also have this kind of 
occasionally pessimistic view of human nature, but I, I like I like hearing somebody as optimistic as you are for sure. Well, I mean, I hear that perspective. I mean, we're, we're, we're expressly a non-partisan campaign, and if I could just share yeah. briefly, in the in yeah. the UK, I think we've had um, there's been really um, heartwarming kind of broad support for this idea of let's enable more and let's give communities more power to say yes to stuff that's sort of in their interest and make it easier make it easier for people to say yes and to want to say yes and that's not that's not a kind of partisan thing right right um there's 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 generally people of both parties who are happy to say okay so long as this this makes sense for for our community then let's do that and Again, it's also about the scale of the change. You know, if you say to somebody, right, we you, we want to build high-rise towers in your neighborhood, then probably more people are going to object to that than if you say, okay, well, what if you went from single-family homes to townhouses? Is that really is that really such or from or if you what if you can add ADUs is is the best example, and, and there's been a lot of acceptance of that in California. So I think that sort of illustrates we just if we can experiment more, we can find more things that the vast majority of people can be happy with, and that's always going to be a better way forward because it's just a more sustainable way forward that's fair and i I, vegas is about to become an experimental spot for this just kind of on accident we've expanded to the point where we're hitting uh, bureau of land management land in most directions we're also hitting limits on how far we can get water out of the lake mead and back into lake mead Uh, so now the discussion is how do we get vegas to build up because the only place where we have anything bigger than 10 stories is along the strip everything else is flat, 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 even apartment buildings are only two stories out here. So that's about to hit where in the next 15 to 20 years, there's going to be a continued pressure in Vegas for more housing. And at the same time, there's nowhere to put it. So people are going to have to get creative out here too. And it'll be interesting to see how just those pressures force changes in planning and development and how densely we populate. Um, Great. Well, I hope you speak to, your, to the planning department and encourage them to try new ideas because um, that that's the most promising way forward as far as I can see. <laughs> I'll, I'll do what I can. And so on that, I wanted to ask about the Yimby Alliance, which you're the, one of the co-founders. And it's a, it's a group that's advocating for all of these ideas. So that's your primary work now, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, and we're primarily focused on the UK, but you know, always happy to talk to to people from other countries, especially the United States. Um, and uh, we've just been aiming to build... A broad, as broad a coalition as we can of all of the sort of different groups and organizations who want the right thing, who want to give people opportunity, who want to give young people the chances that their parents had, um, whether that's for home ownership or for a good job um, or, or for the right chances for their family. And to do that, and so we've done a lot of work with that coalition to figure out ways forward that, that do get broad support. And we want to um, find things that can stick, that can really, over time, build um, a consensus for more housing in a way that, in, in ways that people, that there isn't a massive backlash against. Yeah, and that's, so Yimby, I, I know the listeners probably know this, but Yimby is an opposition to NIMBY, which NIMBY's not in my backyard. Yimby is yes in my backyard. Um, there was a, a big group in Seattle that's called the bimby movement it's the business in my backyard and they started talking about using like every fourth house turn into a business or turning a garage into a walk-by thing and especially during covid there were several smaller shops where they couldn't work in the storefront anymore and so they were opening businesses in garages and so for a while during uh during covid in seattle they had quite a bit of success in this having 
a, a donut place that's just somebody's garage. Um, but then after COVID and people started opening business back up, there was local pressure against it. And so there's been kind of an interesting story playing out there in this, this push back and forth. But in that concentration of stuff and the yes in my backyard movement, how much opposition do you normally get from the classic NIMBYs? Well, like we have a, just we, there and they're like, I've lived here 30 years and I don't want anything to change. Right. It's right. that we have a no NIMBY left behind policy. Right. So we kind of, <laughs> that's great. We, we don't believe there's anyone who's totally opposed to everything. Although I will admit some people get close. You've probably heard of the term, um, banana build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. Um, <laughs> so we have a slight problem working with some of those, but um, you know, but we've had a lot of success in um, talking to groups, which you know you might see as more NIMBY, and saying, okay, well, what change can you live with? Um, and you know, not not always, but um, if you can sort of, if you can find things which are actually going to benefit their community and and or benefit their own families, and the change in Houston is probably an example of that, or the ADU legislation in California, then. Um, then most people are surprisingly reasonable, you know, and, and coming back to your point about people wanting to punish each other in games. I mean, that may be true to a certain extent in a, in a, in a psychology laboratory, but if you, if you can find things which are going to benefit people and their neighbors and okay, maybe, maybe a, a builder will make some money out of building something. Maybe some renters will get some, some more affordable housing out of it, that, but they're winning as well. People are very open to that kind of suggestion. Yeah. That's fair. And to that point, I think there's also a continual generational shift on what people expect out of housing and what they expect out of cities. And that comes to something that we at Poplar are focused on. And that's that over the next like 15 to 20 years, as baby boomers pass and their children inherit their property, we're going to see one of the largest transfers of wealth in the history of the world. Just this massive amount of money that was built up after World War II coming into new hands. As that happens, as the people who are making the policy changes, how does that affect your work and Yimbyism and the ability to change this stuff? Um, well, I hope it makes it easier. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, unfortunately, it's so you, you find uh, people who are renters who um, don't want change in their neighborhood already, even though it would probably be in their interest to have more apartment built, uh, apartments built and it would make it their discussion with their landlord easier. So, um I'm not going to bet the farm on 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 a generational shift suddenly solving this problem overnight. I'm afraid, especially because if you look at if you look at how housing affordability has changed, you know, homes have got less affordable over decades and decades. And um, the the number I always like to look at is a hundred years ago in England, um, a house cost less than a motor car, right? And uh, I don't know about house prices where you are, but that's definitely not the case here. And it's it's very far not the case. And so how have we made so much progress in building motor cars? And, you know, we now have electric vehicles that are that yeah. can be carbon net zero um, when we haven't done that with housing. And so we need we need a kind of radical change to reverse that century long slide of, of underperformance of housing. Fair. Well, you guys, I mean, you have castles all over the place. You can buy a castle online. <laughs> There's websites that are like, I'd like to buy a castle. You got to start converting those. Just turn them all into multi-use 
settings. Yeah, I, I have I have bad news for you about the cost of repairing the roof on those castles. But oh no, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a couple of trips to the lows of the Home Depot. It's a it's bit a... it's a bit harder than that. Yeah, and and then there's the oh, heating bill. We, we don't we don't have the same weather as you. <laughs> oh, fair, fair. Um, the other factor that plays into this is the development of new cities and the redevelopment of older cities. Uh, I think of Ohio. So they're putting this giant multi-billion dollar chip fab in Ohio. It's going to bring tons and tons of jobs. But in Ohio, they're already pressured on number of housing houses and housing they have. So when they're putting in those kind of things, is there a role for the federal government even to kind of look around and adjust what kind of tax benefits are available based on where they're developing? Look, I think there's a big role for the federal government to encourage um, experimentation, to encourage local areas to try harder. And look, I think this kind of characterizes um, how much of a problem there is that suddenly people see something that's bringing jobs as a problem. I mean, how on earth did we get to that messed up situation where <laughs> we have Fair. so we have so messed up these these this kind of system that suddenly it presents a challenge when somebody dares to create new jobs near your town. Um, and, and clearly this is not the right system to be using. Right. So, so I think we need, we need more experimentation from the planning departments to say, okay, how are we going to take advantage of this? How do we harness this new opportunity to make sure that it improves the lives of the people in our town and for the people who move here? Because I mean, look, people, and to be fair, there are still lots of cities out there that, that like growth and welcome growth and some cities are less in favor of growth than others and the politics in some cities is more difficult um but but there are still too many cities where it's kind of we're still back to that zero-sum game we're still saying oh no if there are more yeah. jobs coming in that's a problem that's just not the <laughs> yeah. right place to be yeah so one of the other directions to go in that is uh, something that's pro been proposed here in nevada which is that a corporation can come in and basically make their own town. And if they make their own town, they enjoy certain benefits and control over that town, similar to how Disney World had control in its area in Orlando. And so as you see those kind of options pop up too, is that experimentation going to be helpful? Or is that one of those ones that's just kind of gets into the weird history of company towns and you have those dangers come back? Well, I'm not going to make a bet on that. I mean, I must admit, having a company town to British ears sounds like science fiction. Um, so <laughs> we just don't have that kind of thing. Although we, you know, we did have um, uh, we did have a famous chocolate manufacturer that's built its own town, Bourneville, um, and we've had sort of examples of um, employers developing whole ranges of housing for their employees. I don't think we've ever had that kind of radical. Um, delegation of government to a, to a company. So I, you know, I have no idea how that's going to go. I look forward to seeing the results of that experiment. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I think that'll be, that'll be an interesting one. And the first person who's started talking about taking advantage of it is of course, Elon Musk is <laughs> saying he'll put a, <laughs> a Tesla town out here somewhere. So we'll see if he goes through with that. Um, before we leave, and I want to be respectful of your time, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of promote where you're at, where people can find the Yimby Alliance, where they can read more about you. Um, of course, there'll be links in the show notes, but what would you like to get people over and on and following you and to your website? That's really kind. Thank you. So um, we have a website, yimbyalliance.org.org. Um, if you're not used to my strange British accent, um, if, if you want to there, you can sign up for email updates. Um, you know, so we have this uh, idea. I actually wrote a piece for the American Planning Association um, 
a couple of years back, just sort of talking about some of the experimentation that could be done in planning and zoning. Um, they very kindly published that. And so if you want to find out about that, don't hesitate to get in touch. If you're if you're a planner and you're interested in, in things that you might do to help your city, um, very happy to, uh, to swap ideas and chat. But I think that's it. And uh, just speak up for more and better housing in your area. Encourage your city government to try new things so that they can actually welcome more jobs and more people um, rather than pushing them away. Thank you very much, John. Um, on our side, we, you can find us at poplar.home slash POD. That's poplar.home slash pod if you have any need for property management services in your area or to see where we cover. This has been a great conversation, John. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your ideas. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>